Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs, and today we get to talk to Cyan Bannister. And Cyan is a f- partner at the Founders Fund, and we should, probably should all know the Founders Fund, which is founded by Peter Thiel. And at Founders Fund, Cyan focuses on uh, heavy regulated industries, marketplaces, um, SaaS businesses, and businesses that help people find meaningful work. So that's quite an interesting variety. And before Founders, <laughs> <laughs> before Founders Fund. She uh, founded Zivity, which is a, uh, and she can probably describe it better than I can, but we're, it's a site where photographers and models connect with um, back financial backers, and uh, yeah, it made its change over the years. But um, and she's she, and she has also been a prolific angel investor, and she's in she invested in a number of companies, including Uber and SpaceX, which is not too shabby. So I'm excited to learn more about the science background, Zivity, and what she's doing now. So thanks for uh, joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Definitely. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your your background? What, you know, where where did you grow up and how did you uh, eventually get to Sure. Where you're yeah. <laughs> so um, I grew up in Arizona. I was born in Tucson, and so... Um, I don't really remember Tucson that much, but I was raised in the Four Corners area on the Navajo Reservation. And so um, definitely a flyover place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, few people, very few people visit there. And, you know, it's not like a top destination for tourists. But I, I grew up there, and then I also lived in Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, Phoenix. Um, I got into the tech world when I was an adult and young adult in Phoenix, and pretty much everything that was cool and happening in technology was happening in, you know, Silicon Valley. And uh, if I wanted to be a part of this, I felt like I had to pack up everything I had and put it in my car and make the journey west. And um, I did that, and everybody said, your dreams will come true on Craigslist, and they did. I got my first job on Craigslist, <laughs> sold my car on Craigslist, got my first place to live on Craigslist. And um, and basically, from there, I started out working, you know, in um, I worked at various ISPs, internet service providers, um, in case anyone doesn't know what that is. And then, uh, worked at a couple of startups and, you know, eventually worked my way up from being a system administrator and network engineer, um, automation engineer into management and eventually from management, um, into being an entrepreneur, uh, where I started Vividity, which you talked about and you're, you're, your description of it is accurate. Um, the photography is pinup photography, which is a little controversial. Uh, but we were kind of like Kickstarter and Patreon um, before they existed. We were ahead of our time. And it's still around today, and it hasn't changed much, actually. And uh, around the time that I started Vividi, I also started getting into angel investing because I had worked at a company called Ironport that sold to Cisco in 2007. And I didn't know what to do with the money that I'd made. And my husband at the time uh, also was an angel investor. And I say was because he's not that active right now. But he started um, mentoring me and teaching me, you know, where and how to deploy capital. And uh, I couldn't ask for a better mentor, to be honest with you. And he's also from a flyover state. (laughs) He's from Missouri. Oh, no. Um, Okay. Yeah, he's from Missouri. 
and we um, we turned it into a family business, and it was a lot of fun. And we did that for a decade together. And wow. um, yeah, and at some point, it's mostly just because of me, not because of us. We worked really well together. Uh, I decided to get off the couch, which was our home office, and I wanted to be part of the team again. And um, that's why I joined Founders Fund, and that's where I am now. Nice. Thanks for that overview. Okay. A couple of questions. One is, uh, um, you mentioned a Navajo reservation that you grew yeah. up on. So I actually I spent a, I spent two weeks on Navajo reservation in college, but uh, kind of in that area. Really? What part? Yeah. Well, what part? you know, I should, I, it was in Arizona, but I don't know the exact location in Arizona, but, uh, okay. um, I should have, I, yeah, I can look that up, but uh, yeah, okay. it was awesome. But well, the Navajo uh, Reservation is so big. Yeah, I like, know. <laughs> probably more than a quarter of the state. Yeah, oh, so man. it's huge. Yeah, it, yeah. So I don't know exactly where, but yeah. So how how do you uh, end up down there? What were you doing with your sure? Family? Yeah. So my my mom is a teacher, and my grandparents are teachers, okay. and it started with my grandparents. But my grandparents um, were married to Oklahoma. And uh, they started out their teaching careers after they got out of college um, in a one-room classroom. Uh, they taught together in that same one-room classroom. Wow. And at some point, they got a tip that some of the highest wages being paid in the nation were on the Navajo Reservation and that they really, really needed help with educators because there were so many uh, children that weren't receiving a, you know, an education. And there was a, a huge push um, and that's controversial, by the way, because the government rounded up children uh, against their parents' will to send them to school. Uh, so historically, that's very controversial. Uh, but my grandparents looked at it as a huge opportunity, um, and I, you know, they thought it would be a really fun journey to leave everything in Oklahoma and come to Arizona. And at the time, uh, their first school that they taught in, actually the first and last, they, they retired there. It was in Chinle, Arizona, which is next to Canyon Deshaies. Um, and they taught there for well over 30 years Oh wow! and retired there. And, uh, that's where my mom was, uh, raised. Um, and she was actually born in Oklahoma. They had, they had her in Oklahoma and then came back. We have a long family history between Arizona and Oklahoma. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and so my mom grew up in that environment and she went to school at university of Arizona. And then she, when she graduated, started teaching as well. And so she followed the, uh, you know, her parents' footsteps and that's how we, we ended up there and I was raised there. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. It definitely a little, I, Madison, it was very green where we were. It was really dry. So it was, it was a, it was a wonderful experience, but uh, definitely eye opening. Oh, it's, it's very dry. <laughs> yeah. Um, I recommend that anybody if they can to go there because you can't believe you're in America. Yeah. And it's one of these things where you're like, I'm in America. Wow, this is crazy because there's a language you never hear, you know, Navajo language, yeah. um, which ended up being very, very important. Uh, if you read about the Navajo code talkers who helped, you know, uh, speak in their language yeah. to that nobody understood. But, um, you know, when you're on the reservation, people speak in Navajo on, on the radio and they speak in Navajo um, sometimes in the stores and mm. it's a dying language, but at the same time, the tribe works really, really hard, uh, to keep it alive and, um, to their credit. And it's a beautiful language. It sounds a lot like, um, uh, probably like Mandarin Chinese a little bit, um, maybe Mongolian, uh, but it's a, 
gorgeous, beautiful language. And, you know, I, I wouldn't trade my experience there that I had for the world. I think it was just incredibly magical. Um, yeah. Anyway, I could go on forever. Oh, <laughs> I'm starting to ramble now. No, I lo- no, I love it. I mean, that, that, that's that's our second podcast. No, but <laughs> um, yeah, that'd be awesome to talk more about that. Because yeah, I mean, it, I'll we'll stop after that. But it just, I mean, I my experience is very little compared to yours. But you know, it's just interesting. Oh, I could spend a whole hour talking just about <laughs> growing up in northern Arizona. Wow. But like you said, it's that's a whole other topic. Well, yeah, but I mean, but it kind of determined who you who you are now, and maybe some of your. Yes your grittiness and I don't know. Um, and, uh, yeah, but you know, it, it's just so interesting learning about their religion and their customs. Like you said, it's like a, almost a different country and that if this kind yeah. of goes across a, a huge population that you just never really think about, but yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable actually, but hopefully people will get a chance to go there and see it firsthand. Yeah, definitely. So what, so hey, one of my questions, you know, where because it seems like you get, get you get into a lot of things. So you must be pretty curious now. Were you pretty curious as a kid? And was there a lot? You know, what did you do on the Navajo reservation? Was a lot to play play with, or a lot, a lot of outdoors? <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in a teacher compound, um, basically in a town called Fort Defiance. And Fort Defiance used to be a military complex that they converted into. They're basically army barracks that they were converted into places where teachers could live. And then they had a similar compound for doctors. Um, so if you uh, were not Navajo, you most likely lived in one of these places. Hmm. And because your parents or were doctors or teachers. And one of the things they hope for is that, you know, uh, Navajo people will will go and get degrees in either you know, education or in medicine and come back to the reservation. But what they found is a lot of people leave and then they don't return, um, which is why they have to be huge recruiting efforts to bring people in. And so um, a lot of my playmates were in that compound. And so the rest of the kids that I had friends at school uh, bust in from sometimes hours away to get to school. Uh, wow. They've added more school districts since I was a kid, so it's probably not terrible is when I was younger, but, you know, I would see children who had to get up at five in the morning to get to school and then would have two hours to return home. Mm. Uh, many of the kids I went to school with didn't have running water um, or electricity. They lived in what's called a hogan, um, which is a log sort of structure that has uh, a door and, you know, I think two windows and a hole opening in the, in the top. And, um, with a, you know, dirt floor with a central sort of stove in the middle. And so many kids that I went to school with had that. Um, we didn't have television for quite some time. We had, uh, the only television we had was syndicated um, television from Chicago, which kind of warped my view of sort of the outside world <laughs> and what modern living was like. Yeah. <laughs> which again, probably is another whole hour podcast of <laughs> my view of the world as it relates to Chicago. Um, and then we also had PBS. So I watched a lot of Doctor Who and things like that. And then eventually we got cable. And, and to be honest with you, cable television really changed everything because um, people could see MTV and they could see how the rest of the world was and how different we were from them. Mm-hmm. So like what radio 
songs were popular in the rest of the nation were not popular on the reservation TV shows, same thing. Like we were so disconnected from the rest of the world that we had no idea what was going on. And, um, there was something magical about that because, you know, I played in the mud. Um, everything was a toy, you know, it's not like we didn't have Toys R Us, you know, yeah, <laughs> any of that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah. we had sticks and stones and hammers and nails and, you know, um, that's it. Hmm. And you made, you made, you made best of what you could do with those things. And, um, so I spent lots of hours being bored. Uh, but I think that boredom is a portal to creativity. And so, you know, I, I always like to tell people I'm never bored, but it's really not actually true now that I think about it. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's just that when I start to get bored, I start daydreaming and thinking of stuff to do. And then eventually you're not bored. Right. Um, I started my first business, if you can call it a business, when I was about, I want to say like eight years old, um, seven or eight years old. My grandparents sent us a freezer full of pecans. So from Oklahoma, they, they grew pecan trees. And um, we had so many pecans, we couldn't make enough pies here or cookies or whatever to eat all these pecans. So I got the bright idea of going from door to door to sell the pecans um, <laughs> without my mom knowing. Um, to generate myself a secret source of income. <laughs> and she just thought we were plowing through the pecans. So it's not a real business because I didn't understand the cost of goods, right? So, um, but I had my suitcase. I went door to door and I learned how to sell pecans and how to price them, which was actually a really interesting lesson in that experience. Um, and then at some point I sold candy bars and, you know, I always tried to figure out how to make money from, you know, my community and how to, how to make a living. Um, as a kid. And uh, that was something that was, you know, very interesting to me. And, you know, uh, the other thing is that every day was a new day. That's kind of my, my motto in life was every day was a new day. Every possibility is open. Um, and just sort of the power of positive thinking. So every single day I would wake up and I would wipe away the previous day. And I would say, today's the day I do X, Y, and Z. And maybe I would accomplish the thing that I would try. And um, Anyway, I dropped out of school. Uh, I eventually moved to Flagstaff, Arizona uh, in high school. I dropped out of school when I was 15. Oh, wow. And uh, started working okay. and living on my own. So that was a big why is, jump. Why is that? Or why, yeah. uh, it's, it's kind of personal, but okay. basically okay. my right. mom and I, yeah. my, mom and, my mom and I didn't get along. Okay, fair But uh, I'll just shorten, <laughs> condense it to that. Yeah. But I started, uh, I started working, and I, I ended up working in um, mostly food service and retail to start out with. Uh, those were the jobs that were available, and uh, I tried to go to school uh, the best I could, but ended up just having to ultimately leave because I couldn't juggle all of the things and pay rent and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Um, and then at some point, I had you know uh, a brief stint with homelessness, and um, that was interesting. Wow! <laughs> and taught me how to be very resilient. I I uh, basically made necklaces to survive. And where did you stay? That was really uh, under Where's bridges it? in the back, the backs of people's houses and their yards, oh um, abandoned build, abandoned buildings. How long did you do that? For? Uh, this was three to four months on the streets, and then at some point I hitchhiked to New Mexico and stayed in a commune wow. um, through, through the winter, and then eventually, you know, uh, this actually is before. 
I'm getting the timeline kind of mixed up, but this is before I lived on my own from my mom. Okay. Um, so kind of going back in time and then eventually I lived on my own. So this was around the time that I was 14, early 15 that I did this and lived in a commune for a while. I eventually tucked my tail in, went back to my mom's house and then eventually lived on my own. But, um, so yeah, the homelessness was really interesting because, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you bring yourself out of that? Um, you know, and I made necklaces and all that, all of that sort of stuff. And then eventually, um, got a little bit more, uh, career experience and getting hired at different businesses got easier and easier. And I worked in retail and until at some point somebody told me that I could work at this fire protection place. And I, I don't know if you have a sprinkler head above you, but you know, I used to help with that business. Um, I was called an expediter. So I would help deliver pipe and stuff like that. And I also did like administrations, you know, administrative services for the, the front office. And that was my first sort of partially sit down job. So I was really excited about being able to, you know, sit in a chair at a desk in front of a computer. I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. Um, and then at some point a friend of mine said, well, you know, you should really work in dial up tech support. And I was like, Oh, well, I'm not technical. I don't, I don't have the experience for that. And he said, I could teach you in one night. And so he did. And, and that forever changed my life because I went and did an interview. I got a job doing dial up tech support and, uh, Basically, it led me to where I am now. Wow. Well, that's another whole podcast right there. <laughs> yeah. I have like a million questions, but oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I did not know all of, all that about your uh, childhood. Wait, wait, when you were a homeless on your own, were, were, you, uh, were you scared? Like, or no. Was it a pretty good community? No. Yeah. Um, not really. I probably should have been more scared than I was. Um, part of it was, uh, sometimes when you're homeless, you find a community and I was part of a community of punk rock kids, okay. uh, some who were out there for lifestyle reasons because they romanticized the lifestyle and some were out there similarly to me because they had really bad home situation. And so, you know, we took care of each other and it's one of these things where sometimes you can fall into a bad community of people. I just happen to be extraordinarily lucky and fall into a good group of people. And, you know, that, that looked out for each other and treated each other like family. So, um, I wasn't scared. As a matter of fact, it was a big adventure. Part of the thing that started to wear on me though, was like, you know, when you need to shower and mm -hmm. take care of those sorts of needs, you know, homeless people like to shower. It's just a can't. And so, um, when you, a lot of times when you see homeless people on the street and you're like, wow, that person's filthy, they, they would probably prefer not to be that way. And so that was the one thing that got kind of on my nerves after a while. And I would just take showers and fountains. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So, um, and we, we can go on to more of your professional career too, but, but this is interesting sure. too. Um, but, uh, well, one other thing was, uh, you know, you, after you did that, like starting a company, all this other stuff probably seems kind of not easy, but it's like, you know, it, you, you, uh, you had a little, uh, some uh obstacles early on that a lot of us don't have and you know create some probably some type of resiliency you know I, I was curious um you know if you were talking to other kids right now and most of them you know are gonna probably 
have a normal setting, let's say at a home, like how do you create that same type of resilience without <laughs> having to do your same type of experience? Sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I realized as when I got older was my life was hard, but there's people's lives were even harder, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So when I start looking around the world and I look at, you know, people's living conditions in other countries, even our own country, I can find so many people whose lives were far more challenging than mine and they were able to persevere. And I think, um, you know, even though I had my challenges, every child doesn't have a, cha- a completely challenge-free life. Um, so I think, you know, resilience is an interesting thing. I think part of it is uh, parenting style. So one thing I, I'm concerned about is how hands-on we are with our children and how much we coddle them. Whereas when I was a kid, I was left to my own devices. And so um, probably too much to my own devices <laughs> compared to other kids. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you know, I was a free-range child. And because of that, I had a really strong sense of self and what I wanted out of the world. And I spent a lot of time thinking about who I was and what I wanted to be. And so I think if I had advice for kids is to try to talk their parents into backing off a little bit um, in a constructive way, hopefully, but just, you know, give me space to figure out who I'm going to be and what I want to be and room to make mistakes. And, uh, you know, so I can learn from them. I, I often read these stories about parents going into interviews and talking to you know, job prospects or going into universities and helping them with, you know, getting into a university and just being overly and too involved in their child's life. And that goes on into adulthood, which is frankly quite scary to me. Mm. And so I think you're not neglecting your child if you give them room to figure that all out. So I guess that would be my biggest piece of advice is just to try to talk to your parents about, you know, space. Yeah, that's good. Yes, I have a daughter, and I always think about the same thing about trying to give her space. Yeah, but, it, but it's a uh, it's yeah, hard. It's, it's hard, hard because we live in a world also where you can get child protective services called on you if you leave your kid in a car. That's you know, I got yeah. left in the car constantly um, <laughs> with the windows rolled down, right? Like yeah. so, it wasn't soaring hot, right. and I wasn't a baby. Yeah, but you know, my mom would go in shopping, and I was you know ten years old, eight years old, whatever. She just leave me in the car. And no one was concerned about me being kidnapped, but today we have this real stranger danger fear of the unknown, and part part of it has to do with media and social media and blowing things out of proportion and, you know, this sense of danger that's really not, I believe, as real as it is perceived. And so I think, um, you know, I think, I think kids just need more space. I'm really worried about them. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's podcast number three. Um, yeah. All right, so now that we're like two thirds of the way through, and I, I think I've asked about two questions. Um, no, this is awesome. So uh, let's see. So all right, well, let's talk a little bit more about the, your professional world right now. Even though what we're talking about is probably as we're more interesting, but um, sure. So let's see where to begin. Um, so I was curious with the timeline with Zivity and, uh, when you started angel investing, did you start both those around the same time or when did you start? Uh, yeah, yeah. R- roughly around the same time. Okay. Um, my cadence was much slower when I was running Zivity and, uh, day to day, but you know, Scott's wasn't. And so a lot of times when he was evaluating a deal, he would bring it in 
to our, you know, our house, to our couch office, and we would discuss it. And so I got a lot of exposure then. But the other thing is that Zivity really opened a lot of doors for me in really unusual ways. So I started getting invited to all these conferences hmm. and getting exposed to networks that we weren't exposed to. And, you know, that's one of the ways that, you know, I figured out how to do the Uber investment was because I got invited to a conference. And if I wasn't working on something interesting, maybe that wouldn't happen. Interesting. What, yeah, which goes along this. Just uh, you never know where things are going to end up. So just keep uh, working hard and accepting opportunities. And um, yeah. So, so Uber. When did you uh, invest in Uber? What What round was it? So it wasn't the seed seed stage, yeah. the friends and family round, but it was the the round after that. Wow. So um, very early. That's so a... it was the only one where it wasn't Garrett Camp and Travis and yeah. um, et cetera. So they had like some ultra seed round, and it was the, I guess, seed two round, <laughs> however you want to describe much, it these days. How much did they raise in that round? Do you remember? Oh, a few million. That, um, it wasn't that much. Well, nice work. Um, so yeah, so yeah. How, why in the world did you invest in that? I mean, it, it now, of course, it's obvious, but at the time, um, what uh, made you uh, write the check? Yeah. So it's a combination of luck and pattern recognition, right? So um, my driver that drove me to the airport, his name's Roger. Um, uh, I had a private driver, and he would tell me every single time that not a full-time private driver, but like, yeah. <laughs> basically a, li- a livery driver I would hire on contract. But anyway, gotcha. um, <laughs> so it sounds so pretentious. I am a driver. <laughs> anyway, so. <laughs> um, I would get, you know, I'd charter basically this car to take me to the airport. And my driver, Roger, said, you know, I found this company that I think that you would really like. And I'm not an investor, but if I was, I would invest in this mm. company. And it's called UberCab. And um, I said, well, how does it work? And he said, well, you know how you schedule cars to the airport and it costs you a hundred some dollars to go to the airport. Well, now you can just summon me on this app and I show up and you don't have to schedule me in advance. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. And I'm like, well, what's the market size for that? Because most people <laughs> right. don't want to pay $100 to go to the airport. Like, I'm, I'm surely an outlier. And um, you think, yeah, but, you know, the prices uh, are cheaper. Um, you know, and it, it actually cuts down on our overhead. And I said, well, how many drivers are there? And he's like, oh, just me and, like, one other person. And I'm like, okay, well, oh my give me the information for the founder. Yeah. And he gave me uh, basically a business card for Ryan Graves which um, I used to say that it had a Wisconsin phone number, but it was Chicago. So it had a Chicago phone number on it. Got to get my historical facts correct here. <laughs> um, and I remember looking at it with Scott and being like, there's something that doesn't add up here for us for our thesis of investing, you know, in Silicon Valley companies in our backyard, um, which is something we did. I'm expanding my view on that, by the way, which we can talk about. But um you know, it just didn't fit, you know, what we what we believed in. And so we just sort of put it aside. We're like, this is kind of odd, neat idea. But the pattern recognition part comes in where Scott and I had been thinking about and having long discussions about the taxi industry and the medallion system and, and it, you know, what a racket that whole thing was and just how dissatisfied we were with the taxi industry. And so it was something that was kind of top of mind for us anyway. And um, so fast forward my driver brings it up to me again. We still don't call and he keeps pestering me about it. I go to this conference and I meet Travis for the first time and 
I thought to myself, you know, he was on the bench. He wasn't uh, actively pitching over at this event. He was basically in between jobs, but he had this gravitas about him that's hard to describe. And as an investor, I like to file people away as interesting. Watch what that person does, you know, keep like a mental file. So I mentally filed him away. And then I didn't think about him again until I went to another industry event where he was pitching Uber cabs to a small group of investors. And that's when I emailed Scott and said, you know what? Uh, I think this guy might end up being the CEO of this company and we should invest. And so there's something about the combination of the gravitas of Travis fighting a highly regulated industry that we'd already thought about that made sense. But other than that, none of, none, nothing else about the business made sense. <laughs> um, because there was this, you know, Ryan Graves was the CEO. And here's this guy pitching this company at this event, but he's not the CEO. And it was just all kind of strange. But anyway, so we ended up meeting with Ryan Graves, and he thankfully allowed us in because most of the other investors were friends of Garrett's and Travis's and his. And uh, we were one of the only outsiders. Hmm. Wow. And hopefully you gave your a nice tip to your driver for the continued pestering. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yes, I, I definitely, yeah, uh, I owe, I owe him a lot. That's right. <laughs> um, interesting. That's a, that's a pretty good story. And, and so, and at the same time, around, well, I know it was around, right around a little before that you probably started Zivity. I, I was just curious, you know, why you started Zivity? Like what, what attracted you kind of to that, uh, business model and sure. photography and, yeah, it was a very different time back then. So just to give people an idea of, of what the world was like then, MySpace was the number one social networking site, not Facebook. And Friendster was sort of fizzling and dying out. And MySpace was built around this one-to-many audience platform, sort of like what Twitter is today. Um, but the most compelling content on MySpace um, and most compelling profiles were of models and women who were trying to make a living modeling. And uh, there were boundaries put on these profiles due to advertising of what they could put on their pages or not. So they were, you know, heavily content policed. And so when I looked at that, I thought, well, there's a huge opportunity here. This is an underserved market. And this is uh, still a type of content that people are willing to pay for in a land of, you know, where content has to be free and advertising driven. I thought there could be a subscription model made here. And I, I didn't see anybody really try anything around subscription models and social networking sites. Um, but there was one competitor that existed at the time. Um, and I'm now, you know, great friends with the founders and that I looked to, to try to figure out like how to figure out my business model, because I, you know, I wanted to be very different, compelling in different ways than them. So the, the core of the business was microfinancing and funding uh, content and a patronage site, much like, like I alluded to earlier, Kickstarter or, you know, Patreon or Patreon, however you want to say it. Um, and so basically fans support models um, and photographers by, for lack of a better term, tipping. Today, the word is called backing. Um, back when we started, there was, that was not an industry norm. We didn't, the term backing didn't exist. So we called it voting because we didn't couldn't figure out what to call it. So, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, so there's but there's a problem with the word voting. Voting implies that it's free and you can only do it one time. So 
that was a strange action for a lot of our members. They're like, what am, how am I voting? Right. So anyway, uh, Zivity is still around and it's more of a lifestyle business at this point. I'm very passionate about it. Um, but it's a small business and, you know, it operates off cash flow and, That's cool. you know, it, I, I, I think it's neat. Nice. It's one of those businesses that actually makes money. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but it, it, it also, um, uh, it's a challenging business because it barely makes any money. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> part of it, part of it is we've been shipped away at by, you know, we've been around 10 years and, and things have changed so radically and we've been shipped away at by social networking sites, by Google itself with image search, with uh, Twitter, Facebook, and now Patreon is pretty much eating our lunch. So I'm not sure how much longer we can survive, but I think um, it's been a beautiful run, and I think we've actually changed the world, uh, at least in that sector, um, in positive ways uh, for good. And so that that part I'm really excited about. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, all right, let's talk. we got a, a few minutes left and uh, a lot of questions. We won't get to them all, and that's okay. But uh, um, and if there's anything you want. You can want, just have me back. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Good. And, yeah, I think we have at least two more podcasts queued up for now. But um, <laughs> so, all right, so I'm curious uh, about the Founders Fund and, uh, you know, why you decided to join. I mean, you said you wanted to get off the couch and <laughs> go work with the team and stuff, which makes sense. But uh, how do you – get connected to them and why did you uh, choose them over some other VC firms? I mean, cause you have quite a tracker of angel investing. I'm guessing there've been some other firms interested. Yeah, there have been other firms that are interested and mostly it's actually been a lot of other high net worth individuals who wanted me to uh, deploy their money for them. Um, so they would be the only LP. And to be honest with you, I was already operating a fund a, you know, basically a sizable fund level vehicle with, with my husband. And um, so it didn't really make a lot of economic sense for me to be investing people's money. And however, I've had, a, you know, 10 year plus relationship founders fund and I've co-invested with them and I've gotten to know a lot about how they think about the world and the types of investments that they do. And that's what really appealed to me was if I'm going to spend my time investing, you know, I would rather have a bigger impact. So angel investing does have a big impact because you can help someone go from zero to something. Um, But at the same time, you know, learning about growth stage funding, learning about later stage funding um, is appealing to me because I'd like to understand the full stack and the full spectrum of investing. And hold on one second. (coughs) need to cough (laughs) and edit that that out. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, I am here to do some of our more early stage investing because of my track record and to help us get exposure to early stage deals and, you know, provide my unique sort of perspective on that. So um, I'm still doing early stage investing, but at the same time, you know, getting dipping my feet in the waters is like an area that's kind of uncomfortable for me. Like once you start deploying check sizes of 500 K and above it, it's, it's a little nerve wracking. Um, <laughs> I bet. so it's not easy to do internally, externally, et cetera. So, you know, that's what I'm, I'm here to do and then hopefully make our LPs a lot of money. 
And uh, for people who don't know what an LP is, it's a limited partner. Um, I invest other people's money and I also invest my own alongside of it. Oh, that's nice. Okay. And what, uh, you know, since starting there, because you, when did you start, you've been there about a year or so, or how, when did you start at the Founders Fund? I think it's been about a year and three months. Three and three, okay. And, you know, what, what have you learned since joining there that either surprised you or you made you a better investor, you think? Oh gosh. Uh, what have I learned? I, maybe not. I, I can only say <laughs> you know, a lot, actually okay. a lot. I don't know how to pinpoint one thing actually, but uh, consensus based investing is very different than conviction based investing. Hmm. Now um, we are, you know, encouraged here to have, to follow your gut and to have conviction. But at the same time, um, you know, there are rules around how funds are structured and how you deploy capital and it involves, it's a team sport. It's not a solo sport. So as an angel investor, I was solo or, you know, at the most I had to talk to Scott, but I had a lot of freedom to do whatever I wanted. And here I still have a lot of freedom compared to other funds, um, which is one of the reasons why I like founders fund, but at the same time, not a solo activity. And so that part was really interesting to learn and navigate. And I think I'm just starting to hit my stride a year into it. It took about a year to figure out how a lot of this stuff works. Hmm. And maybe some other venture fund managers, it took them a lot less time because maybe they're quicker studies than me. Um, But, you know, to really understand some of the intricacies of how this works and how the other firms work and who are the players and all this sort of stuff, it actually took me about this long to really feel like I'm not an imposter. Oh, that's <laughs> so I suffer from imposter syndrome. <laughs> and, um, you know, for the first like six months, I was like, what have I done? You know, I am way out of my element. Really? And well, but you made so many investments. Yeah. What, uh, like, what do you mean by how stuff works? Like just getting to know the, the players and like how deals actually get done or I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, so early stage is so different. Like, you have these party rounds where 10 to 12 investors, maybe less, put together capital. And then that that entrepreneur either succeeds or fails on that capital and goes on to raise their next round. By the time they're raising their next round, we often are not part of that process anymore. And other than signing paperwork or, you know, if there is any that we need to yeah. approve of anything, et cetera. But as the company matures and grows, the angels are kind of left behind. And we are off doing our next thing. And uh, hopefully get updates from the company and hopefully things are up and to the right and doing well, right? But, you know, it's very different in later stage because then you have to really evaluate um, a company based on metrics and a company based on traction and all sorts of things that really don't exist when you're doing seed early stage investing because you're, you're looking at people and your conviction around whether or not that person can solve this particular problem that they're chasing, right? Um so later stage is that in addition to a bunch of other stuff. And then the other thing is that you're competing. So as the allocations get bigger, you're competing with other firms. When you're an angel investor, it's not as competitive. You know, it's, it's we oh, sure, we've got room for 15 of you at a check minimum check size of whatever amount. At the later stage, it's like we've got room for one or two. Mm. And so you've got to really prove that you're valuable um, to the founder, that you bring a lot of expertise and there's a lot of expertise I don't have, you know, like, for example, if someone's looking for somebody in the hospitality space, uh, I've never run a hotel chain. I've never, 
run a chain of restaurants, you know, things like that. So I would not be that useful. And so I've got to try to figure out other ways of providing value to entrepreneurs um, beyond just capital. So there's a lot of, you know, yes, money is all green. You can get it from anywhere. But at the same time, people want you to be extraordinarily additive to their business. Um, and so that's the, that's the area that I've had to figure out. Gotcha. That makes sense. And so, I mean, when you, when you look at the series A, series B, I mean, are there only, I mean, you, you look in the media and like, Oh, there's so many companies getting funded and it's just, you know, all over the place. But is it really only so many really good investments that a lot of people want to get into? A lot of VCs want to get into and it, are those, or are there a number of, uh, um, potential investments out there that, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is... Yeah, I think I, yeah, think I understand yeah, the yeah, question. Yeah. yeah, I think... So there's a lot of companies out there uh, that are definitely tracking well that are probably probably deserve to be in the Series A category that don't make it for a variety of reasons. Okay. One could be um, because of sort of the outlook of the world at a certain time, right? So the market can become bearish and bullish on a dime. And... So they may go out and try to raise money, but the goalpost for a Series A just moved. And they're like, well, we're now only looking for companies that make this amount of revenue that have these metrics. Um, maybe five weeks ago, we would have done your company when we were looking for something else. Uh, that's the hardest thing is the goalpost moves, right, constantly. And so sometimes, you know, entrepreneurs are toiling away and they, they feel they've got their company to a good place to go out into the market and, just, you know, discover that, you know, investment is just not there. Partially is because um, a lot of funds have very different things they're looking for. Like a seed stage fund uh, may be looking for certain types of returns, but a mature fund such as Founders Fund, who's been, you know, we're now on our sixth fund, $1.3 billion. Um, think about what it takes to return $1.3 billion in capital. So you got to have power laws. You have to have outliers. So we're searching for companies that have huge potential, and that's hard to do, and there's only so many of those. So if you think about how many companies are worth $10 billion, um, how many are there? Yeah, Not that many. Right. And how many newly created $10 billion companies are every year? Not many. <laughs> right. So think about how many billion-dollar companies we would have to have to return the fund. Mm. You know, and then it starts to get hard. You know, you 10 or more. So, um, (laughs) being able to, to bat that well is really hard. You know, one of our, um, partners here just made them, uh, I think number five on the Midas list, on the Forbes Midas list. And he had the second largest venture backed exit of all time and the largest biotech exit that was venture backed of all time. And, um, you know, how do we top that? How do we get another one like that? I mean, that's something that we have to think about, and it's really, really hard. So yeah. the bigger your fund size gets, the harder it gets. It, it's uh, intimidating, but also exciting. <laughs> to, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. All right. Well, we're uh, we're out of time. I have like many more questions, but uh, maybe, like you said, another time. Um, but uh, I know you're yeah. busy. Although, I, I do want to ask. Oh, yeah. Yeah. God, there's different questions. But. On a personal level, I'm always curious, you know, do, what do you uh, like to do uh, when you're not working? Is there anything you like to do, anything that makes you happy? 
relieve some stress. You know, the thing that makes me the happiest is to sit and daydream and invent new company ideas. I know that sounds nice. weird, but it integrates no, really well to my I, work life. I understand that. <laughs> so I have a file that I keep on my phone of ideas that I come up with, and then sometimes I sit and I daydream and I iterate on those ideas. And I try to think of all the possible ways that you could make this product and then existed how amazing it would be. And then I hope to run into an entrepreneur that's making it. Because then I'm like, aha, I found you and I can give you capital and you can go make it. Um, because I don't want to be an operator. I learned my lesson. <laughs> but I don't want right. to do that ever again. <laughs> no, that's, that's, so, uh, that's a great pastime. Oh, so would you ever go approach an, an entrepreneur maybe with like the industry experience or at least just ex- – good experience saying hey you know would you want to raise a small seed test this idea out then you know i'll be there kind of more almost like the incubator role with that uh yeah that's not my style i think um that works for other investors yeah uh and that's that's an approach that i've seen that people take but you know one of the things about founders fund and, and which meshes with what i believe is we want founders to wake up in the morning with the idea and we're backing them and so convincing them to do something is kind of against what we believe in, right? Because then we're getting into a role where we're telling people what to do. And it's not authentic. It doesn't come from a organically authentic place. Um, mm. So it's very difficult for us to try to guide people to, the, to a place. So instead, I just search for someone to come up with an idea that I've thought about for a long time or that we've thought about for a long time, and then it appears. Um that's, a, that's what we call proactive investing. Uh, we also are just reactive. So you can never predict, um, some, not never, you can rarely predict where the next big thing is going to come from. So you have to be pretty open to sectors. Uh, you know, that's how we got into biotech. We, we certainly were not a biotech firm. We were not known for it. It's just because Brian woke up one day and said, I'm not doing consumer internet anymore. I'm just going to focus on biotech. So I think that's where the next big thing might be. And then it turned out he was right. Hmm. Interesting. And oh, and before we leave, one you mentioned at the beginning or near the beginning that we can maybe talk about later is like something about your investment thesis or um, it was related to like geography or something. Do you remember? Oh yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. So just just a touch. So on that. I used to only invest in Silicon Valley based companies okay. um, with a few outliers. And every time I I veered from veered from that course, I lost everything uh, that I invested in those companies, mostly just because, not because they're bad entrepreneurs, but I wasn't able to provide um, the network and the various infrastructure for them that I can here in Silicon Valley. Like if someone calls me here, says I need help with X, Y, or Z, or introduced to this person, you know, if it's a network, I can help with that. You know, and if it's in New York or Florida or something like that, I just don't even know who to talk to there. So, we have expanded our thinking on that mostly because the cost of living in the Bay area is so high and our capital doesn't go as far anymore. So when you give a company $200,000 and it buys them one full-time employee, that's kind of ridiculous where, you know, you might be able to go to Texas or Florida and that buys them four full-time employees or maybe three and also improves that city and that location in a drastically amazing way when the startup sprouts up there and then they can employ people locally as well as bring talent into that area. So we've started thinking about looking abroad. We don't see one specific city sort of sprouting up, maybe Seattle, 
um, seems to be drawing a lot of engineering talent, but there's there's nothing that really sticks out as like that's the city that we need to deploy as much capital as possible into. It seems to be popping up all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing opportunities all over the United States, all over the world, and there's no like the next Silicon Valley. So I can tell you what it is because we we haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, of course, being Madison, Wisconsin, we we appreciate that the new uh, philosophy. <laughs> so yes, yes. Um, well, we're looking everywhere. All right. Well, I'll. Uh, so, if anybody listening, if you have a, a pretty sweet company, <laughs> reach out. Yes, um, please reach out to me. And uh, all right. Well, and wow, God, I really want to ask what what's one of your favorite companies right now that you're looking at or invested in. Do you have a few more moments? Sure. And then, I have so many favorite companies. It's like asking like what, what your favorite child is, right? But I'll tell you about one that I just did that I'm really excited okay. about. Perfect. Um, it's called Contraline. It comes out of the University of Virginia. Um, and it's a guy named Kevin. And basically, it's a non-surgical gel-based vasectomy solution that aims to be reversible. So it's currently not reversible, but um, the, end, the end goal is that it will be. And so uh, the nice thing about this is, you know, people who are family complete um, get vasectomies and they're usually over the age of 40, um, maybe 35, but usually 40. Now people who are younger can actually have reproductive control over their choices, um, you know, potentially by the time they're 18. And I think that's a huge shift in how we think think about um, birth control. Because uh, one, it's non, it's non-invasive, really. I mean, you may think, okay, well, an injection is invasive, but compared to surgery, and also um, it's non-hormonal, and uh, which means that it means that you know that your partner, um, STDs are still a concern, but if you have a partner that's a long-term partner, that partner may not have to take hormonal birth control, which could really change people's lives. Some people have to take hormonal birth control for medical reasons, but a lot of people don't. Um, and would prefer not to. So I think this will really change the landscape of uh, um, that side of fertility, which I think is really neat. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. How far along are they on the FDA process? Yeah, they're in animal trials currently, so they still have a ways. They're probably four to five years before they will. You could you could buy it, and it will be a. Uh, basically administered via urologists at first um, using, using an ultrasound procedure and um, you can probably opt for getting put to sleep. if you're really afraid of (laughs) Maybe I will. Um, (laughs) Or maybe laughing gas or whatever is is available. Um, It'll be just like going to the dentist. kind of. (laughs) Um, That's right. But yeah, so that, that, that is a, that is an investment that I am extraordinarily excited about. Wow. Yeah. That, that just changes the whole perception on, well, <laughs> that whole area. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. All right. Well, that's a good okay. way to stop. Good way to All right. awesome. end, end this podcast. But, uh, Sign, really appreciate you sharing uh, about growing up and uh, what you're doing now. And, yeah, it's pretty sweet. So, really appreciate your time and thoughts. Absolutely. And thanks for doing this show. I appreciate it. Definitely. And thanks for everyone to. For listening to another episode of Flyover Labs, as always, I uh, greatly appreciate it, and we'll we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>